Hey folks, this week's episode needs a little bit of context. Our guest is Michael Gunger. You may know him from the musical collective Gunger. He's also the host of the Liturgist podcast and one of the leaders of the Liturgist community. But he also has a podcast that he does on his own called Loving This. And his most recent episode highlighted how when we feel the need for validation from others, we often end up resenting others. But that resentment might only be the result of not valuing our own work or our own selves. And what we're really resenting is that we don't love ourselves and we need others to love us for us. So being a member of the Liturgist community, which is a wonderful community, I asked Michael if he would come on the show and talk about this concept, this cycle of validation and resentment and the suffering that exists within that cycle. And I think there are a lot of great lessons to be learned from the conversation that we had, but we also tend to learn even more from the art that we consume, the music we listen to. And with that in mind, I'm going to play myself out with Michael's new song. It's called Look What I Can Do, and I think it sums up this topic very succinctly. So, let's have a listen. So I wanted to actually preface this by saying that we have this list of topics and prospective guests that we like want to reach out to. And I've had your name written down next to conceptual idolatry for months now. Conceptual idolatry. I think that, well, I'm already excited now. (laughs) (laughs) Matt and I both read um, The Crowd, The Critic, and The Muse last fall. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah, that was definitely a part of it that uh, resonated with me a lot. But I guess we're going to do this uh, this topic that your podcast made me think of, which is kind of that, I don't know what, what to call it succinctly, but kind of this concept that we create a, a value system for ourselves, and then other people kind of buy into it. And when we have our own validation system um, mapped out in such a way, and our ego kind of gets in the way, we end up resenting those who buy into the system. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong in, in phrasing it that way, but that's kind of what I was getting out of uh, the podcast that you just released and the song that you just released, which um, I guess we'll talk about in a bit. But am I uh, is my wording accurate at all? Well, it's, I, I'm fascinated by you putting value system in there. I, I mm. don't think it's not accurate, but I haven't thought of it in those in that framework. Um, in the song and what I was talking about my podcast, it was really, I mean, it's very personal. It's, it's more like, so to catch people up who haven't listened to the podcast, um, there's this one story that I tell in it of a home video that I saw recently or a few months back. And in this video I was performing and I was, it was a talent show and the crowd applauded and I saw the look on my face like me now saw the saw the video's <laughs> face, yeah, and it was confusing because it was like it was full of, it was like not the face you would expect to someone to have who was being applauded by a crowd. There was like, right. I was like, what is it? What is that face? So there was like there was a little resentment in it, <laughs> yeah, which is weird because I knew that I wanted that applause, and yeah. then when they were giving it to me, I was resisting it. I was like, what's going on there? What? And that, so I've been exploring that. Um, and I've been exploring it with therapy and, and just a lot of like, what, what is it in me that both needs affirmation and resents affirmation <laughs> um, or like pushes it away that calls in the crowd and pushes it away at the same time? Yeah. And yeah, a lot's been uncovered and I'm sure values are part of it. But that was mm. kind of, it started with noticing a video and then watching and like, has that been the case in my career and i think that little impulse has played itself out in some major times and transitions in my life that have hurt me and others uh, in really unconscious ways sure 
Well, let me start by saying that this isn't necessarily an interview show, but I'm going to ask a lot of interview questions. Okay. Uh, this will be mostly conversational. But the face that you saw your 15-year-old self making, was it kind of, uh, I'm too big for this town? I know you grew up in like kind of a small... Yeah. No, I don't think it was that. I think it was okay. like, I didn't believe them. It was almost like, hmm. what, what's... If you saw me, I think there was a shame underneath it. I think there was like, if you really saw me and saw the, maybe the mistake that I made, I'm sure I made some mistake that I was like, oh, this whole thing is shit now. You know? like, <laughs> yeah. um, and so kind of like not believing it. I was like, why are you, why are you clapping for me? I, there was like a suspicion and kind of like, yeah. I, don't, I don't believe this love that you're giving to me. Mm. Uh, this makes me think of... Um... You know, we, in middle school, we had the D.A.R.E. program, and I wrote an essay about, you know, why kids shouldn't take drugs or something. And I, like, won the honor, quote-unquote, to, like, give this speech in front of, you know, an auditorium full of people. And as they all applauded for me, before I had even given the speech, you know, I'm just walking up to the stage. I hear all this applause, and I vividly remember yelling at them to shut up because I hadn't <laughs> done anything yet. Wow. And I didn't deserve their applause. Yeah. <laughs> and I've always been this kind of person that rejects unwarranted praise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I relate to that a lot. <laughs> and I don't know. It's it's almost like I feel like I don't I I never deserve it. I'm mm. I'm not um even, you know, my girlfriend is someone who uh her love language is words of affirmation, which is a constant struggle for me to adapt to. Because mm. for me, words of affirmation, I don't believe them when wow. people say them. Yeah. Mm. And it's just, how do we know when what we're doing is good enough, especially when it comes to art, and especially when it comes to, you know, praise and criticism. And I don't know, maybe maybe you could speak to this, how um, <laughs> are, are you the same when you read cr criticism of your own work? And do you feel deserving of it? Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, criticism, yeah, criticism hasn't typically bothered me as much as it bothers some people mm. because I always have been my own harshest critic. So it's mm. not like, <laughs> I'm like, that's nothing. You should hear what I think. <laughs> I love that. Uh, but over the, t over, over the years, I've had to... Um, I mean, cause that's not a, it's not a great way to live, you know, like, especially yeah. if you spend a lot of your time making work and, and for people to consume and, and spending time on stages where people are clapping, I've had to like figure out what's going on in there. And lately in the last several months has been really deep work with that stuff. Um, but it was like that 15 year old self was, it was just so on the surface that all became more unconscious and, and repressed and projected in subtler ways through the years. I would never, it's not like, you know, that's not like in my thirties, I was looking at crowds. So I'm like, oh, I don't believe it. It was, <laughs> that would come out sideways, tiny ways, more nuanced ways. Mm -hmm. But I, I think for me now it's come down to, and this is what my latest single was about was if I can actually accept myself and accept, um, if I can love and myself and know that even if I made a mistake in the performance, even if I've didn't, you know, there was some aspect of my work or some aspect of my knowledge that was lacking something that didn't live up to my fullest hopes of what it would be knowing that I have done my best knowing that, and it sounds simple. It's like what you tell a little kid, you did your best, yeah. but allowing myself that luxury to be human and to know that that's what I could do. And like, it's okay. I, mm. And knowing that I don't applaud others for just a perfect, pristine performance. Mm -hmm. You know, I can see a mistake somebody else makes. It doesn't mean I'm like, well, I'm not clapping. I'm not loving. I'm not going to enjoy the rest of this performance. They made a mistake. It's so harsh <laughs> yeah. and ridiculous. Um, and sometimes mistakes make it better. Sometimes I love people's mistakes. It makes it the performance more human and more, right? Yeah. So like learning to do that for myself allows me to receive others love it allows me to then love them more it's like opening up that block all the love can flow all the ways more freely i mean i felt like different facets of this throughout my whole life as well and 
there's definitely a personal side of it where there's a sense that I don't deserve it. There's a sense that um, I'm just confused by it on some kind of a spiritual level, usually when it happens. But mm. there's also like this, uh, I don't want to say a disappointment that feels like it, it puts too fine a point on it, but like on the creative side of it, there's a feeling of like, this has docked, whatever I was doing has arrived in its port. Like the clapping is kind of a punctuation. And I've found that I've had to really reframe that. And it's a lot more final feeling on like a live stream kind of a thing because it truly begins and ends. When I'm in a show, I can be pulling from whatever else. Like I can be kind of in my own head or I can be ignoring everything. So I, I've, I don't know, I've noticed from doing stuff like that that it's been, there's a lot more facets to this than I thought there were. Like it's not as simple as for me at least getting the validation or not or understanding it or not. There's like, it's coming at me from a lot more channels than I expected and it means a lot more things to me than I expected. And at the same time kind of means not as much to me as I expected. Mm. It's, it's been a very, uh, something I never really thought about until fairly recently. So yeah, I'm definitely, I relate strongly and I'm still processing a good amount of it from the ground up. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What something about what you said reminded me like when it's a lot, when it's a lot of effusive praise or something, sometimes it's, it feels like, what, what do I even do with this? What do I do? Because, you know, we're evolved to like see the subtle little smiles and, and somebody affirming us. And that's like a lot. What do you do when hundreds or thousands of people go, yes, what do you do? Like your ego. Yeah. It's hard to know what to do with it. Either I become like an insane narcissist that's like, yes, I am worthy yeah. of all this praise. Or you like let it move through you or you realize that it's not really about you in some weird way. Like mm. you're kind of part of this experience where people are experiencing something in their own bodies and in their own lives. And you're like kind of a conduit involved in it, mm, right. but you can't like make it about you. Otherwise you like, what do you do with all of that? You can't, yeah. you can't handle it. Mm. Yeah. I was actually just thinking about that today that in broad strokes terms, it sort of gives you three main options. Like you can either choose to accept with open arms, like you mentioned, all of that praise, which I can't see how that doesn't make you a monster after a while, you know? <laughs> You're right, <laughs> it, yeah. it has to do something to you. Or you can wholeheartedly reject that praise, which right. kind of brings you back to where we are now. <laughs> or you can kind of ignore it and fully let it flow through you but then it's almost not as fun in a way like it's it's still fulfilling it's still at least for me like it still means something but you don't get that little snap that makes it worth going on stage versus sitting mm. and playing it alone so i always find myself very conflicted with how to process it because a lot of the stuff that feels like it should be the unhealthy part is the part that i think i actually like but not the part mm. that i think i actually am mm. and uh yeah, I end up chasing my tail for a while whenever I yeah. get it. <laughs> I think my favorite, I don't know about what you guys, but my favorite moments live or in, in moments where there's applause is when I'm caught up and I feel like I'm part of it. So I'm still getting, there's still like the exhilaration. There's still mm. the affirmation of what's happening and a pleasure in the work that's being done. Mm. But it doesn't feel like a like I've given them something and and now I'm lacking. It's like, we are giving each other this moment together mm -hmm. and we're part of it together. And then everybody's satisfied. And when it doesn't feel like a one-sided giver or receiver, it's just like, yeah, we're all here and we're all loving this <laughs> yeah. experience together. That's Those are my favorite moments. Mm. Yeah. I just recently read uh, Grist for the Mill and I like the part where Ram Dass is talking about, you know, being on a stage and resenting that he has to be so far away from the audience, mm -hmm. you know, resenting that you can't get a little bit closer and like wanting to kind of speak from the orchestra pit or wanting to get, you know, when you make the audience and performer separate from one another, like that's when right. a lot of that, uh, well, separateness <laughs> yeah. can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And certain rooms and venues and situations make that worse or better. Like I love, like my favorite kind of spaces, if you can ever be like in the round or something like it, I yeah, love yeah. that when it feels like we're all together in some way. My least favorite ones are like the stage is so much higher than everybody else. And everyone's kind of like from a distance watching you. I, those are my least favorite too. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever done any of those like round Robin shows where you're up there with a couple of other like songwriters or something like that? Like there's a few distinct performers on stage kind of rotating through stuff in like a, a storyteller's fashion. Yeah. 
Yeah, so those are fun. I find that those are those give me a different sense of this whenever I play those. Mm. Like it's like the validation's coming from a few more directions when I mm. and it's a little bit it feels a little bit more fair in a way. Like I feel like what I'm getting from the crowd I can average out with what I'm getting from the people next to me who are doing <laughs> the exact same thing that I'm doing but don't have mm. any obligation to love or loathe my material the way that I do. And I, I don't know, it, it just comes down to math kind of in a way when I do that. And it's like, I can sort of make these scales balance and it, it makes more sense to me when I have those shows and it always feels different. I don't know that it feels better, but it doesn't feel quite as much like this, like seesaw thing, right? I could never mm -hmm. possibly give back this level of energy to a crowd and have it feel the way that it's feeling when they're giving it to me. Even if I am, like, even if I'm absolutely on the ball and playing a good show or something, it will never feel like the feeling of hundreds of people screaming back at you. That's just a thing that that's its own, its own feeling. It's its own thing. Yeah. It's crazy. I, I used to like towards the end of my really busy touring career, cause we haven't been touring much the last few years, but I was getting to the point where I'd had to spend so much time like in silence through the day by myself just to try to keep some sort of not the seesaw thing that you mentioned. It's a lot of like adrenaline and just chemicals. And when you do that for years on end, like you don't want to know so many musicians end up like strung out and addicted to something. Cause it's like, you get, you're out of balance. You're like, hi, 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 hi. And then you just <laughs> stuck in a green room that yeah. stinks and has like dicks all over the wall. And like, it's yeah. like this crazy existence. Um, yeah. And to, to so like I was really trying to figure out how do you how do you balance how do you live a life where there's all like just hormonally and and like the chemicals in your brain that are being spiked every night at nine p.m. or whatever um, how do you balance that out it's a it's a crazy life to have yeah I'm curious did you ever notice this being exacerbated around the time that you lost your faith but were still performing as a Christian musician. Yeah, I, but I think how that all went down is related to it because it was like there was something about there was a pressure to believe mm. from my crowd. My audience needed me to believe something mm. for my job and my performance to still be valid for them, and I resented that. Like I, they couldn't see me in my experience. They couldn't see right. me. They wouldn't value me, my gift, my music. I was a puppet of their belief system up there uh, that they would enjoy as long as I danced with their strings. Yeah. And so there was like a, uh, that created a strange relationship with the audience too, where I, uh, that created even more resentment. Like I still needed them. I still loved them on some level, but I also hated that. I hated that feeling that I had to be a certain way to receive their love in a way that I might not be able to continue doing as all my faith was like falling apart. And so, yeah, that was com complicated. Wow. Did you do a tour like that? Like, were you out working all the time under those circumstances or? Yeah. Jeez. Well, yeah, my, that's... I, my deconstruction or whatever, my, my questioning my faith lasted for several years. And oh, some wow. of that, some of that, I think it probably would have gone faster if I hadn't if my career wasn't tied to it, yeah. but because there was so much resistance to every question yeah. that would pop up. What about gay people? I can't, I can't actually look at that question <laughs> because uh, that'll get me kicked out yeah. of my tribe. Yeah. Um, and I finally look at it like, Oh God, I don't think I can talk about that. And then I'm among the people who are making, you know, talking poorly about gay people or whatever. I'm like, I don't agree with them, but I feel now I feel guilty that I'm not speaking up. It just was complicated. It was always a mess. Yeah. Um, so, and that happened the whole time that our career was kind of launching was like, I was, my faith was declining as my career, my Christian music career was advancing. So. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's always the way. Uh. I never have both of those things. Alive. I know, that was too bad. Why couldn't I have been a new Christian convert? Like, oh my God, have you read the Bible? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was finding myself feeling a similar thing 
back when kind of like when 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 this came out and when like Comedy Sex God came out and I started getting into Richard Rohr and you know there's this big kind of mass deconstruction happening around me I started to engage with Christianity on a purely intellectual level and I haven't considered myself a Christian in like 15 years but I started feeling belonging and acceptance from my family again because I was interested in it again, you know, and I grew up in a very religious community and household. So it's that kind of same, like, I'm the puppet at the end of your strings Mm -hmm. feeling like I'm still coming back to your interests, your beliefs, your way of thinking. I'm trying to do it in my own way, but I'm still failing to feel acceptance because it is in my own way. And this is a path that has been carved for me and that I'm not carving for myself. And when I got into the liturgists was kind of when I was really struggling um, about a year ago with these ideas of belonging and and can I trust a tribe again? Mm-hmm. You know, can I not feel like I'm going to be imminently betrayed again? And what I kind of found was um, I reached this point last fall where I said, well, I I don't know what I believe, and I don't know that I feel God in the same way or feel the divine in the same way that I should in order to call myself a Christian or continue to engage with Christianity genuinely. But then I realized, you know, I'm not going to stop writing in biblical metaphors. So why should I stop speaking in biblical metaphors? Why should I stop speaking with other people who can share that same kind of story? And like, if, if at the end of the day what you get out of it is empathy, then sure, engage in that storytelling, engage in, you know, relating to one another. And that can really be a beautiful thing. And, and you know, your podcast and the community that you've created is a glowing example of that. So mm. thank you for being there when I needed thank you. you. <laughs> oh, thank you. But also, you know, I, I just think that that's something probably a lot of people feel is, you know, this, um, when our validation comes to us through the expectations that others have set for us, mm. it's, it can be really hard to kind of back away from that and examine it from an objective point of view and sort of rebuild. And this is why I kind of used the word value system at the beginning, like rebuild your own value system and your own system by which you want to be validated, set your own expectations. And, you know, don't necessarily let others decide where your value lies. Mm. Yeah, we get so afraid of, it's hard to like let, especially when we're insecure in our own beliefs and our own like sense of worth and, and we have our own sense of shame and all that. When we, when we solve that, those problems in myself with belief, when I'm like, well, I don't have to look at all my own shame because I'm part of the right tribe. I'm part of the good team. I'm part of the good guys. And then you have somebody in your world that's now questioning that mm-hmm. thing that makes you feel safe. It makes you feel like you belong. It makes you feel like you're okay. It's hard to leave room for people to be heretics. It's hard to leave room for people to question themselves and potentially like to hold it all loosely. If you're holding tightly, somebody else holding loosely can feel really threatening to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get that. And uh, I certainly experienced a lot of that in my life. But I think that me going through it and seeing the people that, because even when I was in church, there were people that were full on Christian and didn't, but they watched me and there were some people that were actually cool with my whole process. Even as I confessed that I didn't believe in God anymore, there were Christians that were like, cool. You know, I have days like that. (laughs) And that meant that I just, I felt the power of that. And I was like, I want to, I want to be that for other people. Like I want to create space that you can just be whatever you are. And that's mm. fine because I've felt the power of that when somebody had enough space within themselves to allow me to be what I am. What a gift. And so yeah. I want to spend as much of my life being that for other people as I can. That's so great. Yeah, it's powerful. And it has to come from a place of strength to, to like to be secure enough in your own, not just in your own self, but in, in reality and in whatever you might call God. Um, mm. You know, I grew up hearing Bible verses like salvation is the Lord's. But that's not what we were. That's not what I believed. I thought it was 
mine to achieve, mine to hand out to other people, mine to control. And so to just allow people to be what they are completely like, oh, that's how. And and if you believe in God or you have a use the metaphors of the Bible or Christianity and you're like, this is what God needs to have happen because this is what's happening and mm-hmm. accepting everybody's not just celebrating the prodigal son when they come home, celebrate them all. They're out partying. <laughs> you know, like, wow, look at you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> just a lot. Cause it, I think when you do that, it, it allows not only people to just be what they are, but like it, it puts less blockage in their journey. It's not like mm-hmm. you judging the, the prodigal son for being at the party is going to make him not party. It might create more time that he needs to stay at the party before he comes home. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't help anybody. Like it's just, it just, um, so just accepting people's journey. And it goes back to what we were originally talking about. As you accept your own journey, that's naturally what happens. Yeah. And, and, and vice versa. As you accept other people's journey, you can accept where you're at in this moment. How else could it be? The thing I always keep coming back to is, um, I can't think of a better word for it right now, but just how much faith that demands of people, whether it's people in your listenership or friends or peers, you know, that's where it seems like the wires always start to fray a little bit, you know, like Mm -hmm. there aren't those kind of definitive markers the way, I mean, it's, it's sort of that that cliche of the journey and the destination in a way, but it's like, there's a lot of cliches like that, that when you peel them back to their original form they're they're really not as cliched as they seem and i think that's one of them where the journey is terrifying the journey is free fall the journey's not a walk and a lot of people don't necessarily believe you when you say you've got your own idea of a parachute or mm. you can do some tricks or something like there's a lot of faith involved in still believing in something when you adopt that kind of a like that kind of an approach and i, I feel like a lot of people don't adopt it because they want to they do because mm. they end up there or because they just can't deny it anymore or something. And like, I've never experienced it religiously, but I've experienced it and am experiencing it in other aspects of my life and just my identity, like things that I've just always believed myself to be. And it's terrifying for me. And the only ways I'm ever able to convey it are like definitives and, you know, things that like putting out a record or finishing a song or like, it's in nouns basically. Mm -hmm. And that type of a journey lives in adjectives and adverbs and nothing. And it's impossible to convey that to people in a way that I could honestly expect them to trust. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of on one hand, I kind of get it when people don't get on board. And on the other hand, it is so frustrating. And so kind of like, it it does create a lot of pain for everyone Mm -hmm. when you, when you have that sort of a conflict going. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've I've struggled with that a lot. Um, like I said, not in a religious sense as much, but definitely in a spiritual sense. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, thankfully, I, th- I think when you start, when you just start being it yourself, what tends to happen in my experience is you start kind of attracting into your life that same frequency. You know, like. Mm. If, if you're living in harsh judgment of yourself consciously or unconsciously and of others, you're probably, your world's going to look like that. But as you start becoming free of that, you'll, there'll be some transition Well, you'll be losing part of your world because your inside is going to mas- manifest itself on the outside. And those relationships mm-hmm. aren't going to make any sense anymore because those are built on judgment and built <laughs> on rigidity and built on non-spaciousness. Mm-hmm. But as you become more spacious, uh, I think the good news for those that are in those periods of transition are eventually your outer world will start harmonizing with your inner world (laughs) where there will be people who can handle it and handle your spaciousness with you. And that's a scary transition to go through. But the good news is like, you're not actually alone in the world. (laughs) There are others who can hold space with you too. I found there'd be some peace too. And how often, I have felt versions of this feeling like it really just starts to feel like like just waves and troughs and ebbs and flows mm-hmm. and stuff after a while that like you know as final and as beautiful as one of these realizations can feel a couple years or a couple books or a couple albums later it'll 
it'll spin off again and you'll be back to dough. I'm like, oh my God. And that's, I think, especially if you're in any sort of a creative or introspective lifestyle or field or whatever, that is just a requisite part of it. And uh, I'm like slowly finding a, a weird, I don't know, like counterintuitive sense of comfort in that it's like the only thing left to trust is kind of oblivion in that sense and it's kind of i don't know i, I find something soothing in that but again it's not something that i know how to like convey to anyone yet beyond just kind of like taking that breath and trying again like keeping it in motion feels like the only thing that there is to do sometimes but it's not much of an answer you know we are So Michael, the uh, the new uh, course that Kevin Garcia is doing, mm-hmm. I tuned in for it last week, and they led us through this uh, guided meditation at the end, and I found this very interesting. They said, you know, listen to your mind's eye, and, and what is it saying to you, and is it offering you a moment of peace, offering you words of comfort? And what I heard in my mind's eye was, it's fine, you can stay where you are. And this is during a time in my life when I'm all over the place with crazy ambitions and always, you know, creating and working on so many projects. So I said to my therapist, this seemed like a very comforting thought, but I don't want myself to be telling me to stop moving and to stop being ambitious and, you know, to like... Because to me, that invites in stagnation. And she says, and this is so obvious, and she says, no, it was telling you that you're fine where you are in the moment. Right. And you don't need to be something else. And you don't need to, you know, exactly that, like meet the expectations that other people have, have set for you. And I think that so much of the time, I create this system of validation, where I want people to see what I'm doing, what I'm accomplishing, what I'm striving toward. And I definitely need to take that moment to realize that being still and acknowledging stillness and and sitting with that and taking each moment as it comes and, and just being calm doesn't mean that I'm not growing, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't mean that I'm not still accomplishing what I want to accomplish. But if you set out to accomplish those things with the ambition that you will only be who you want to be and only regarded the way you want to be regarded when you have done that thing mm-hmm. or once you have accomplished those things, that I think is what my mind is trying to, to say to me. And uh, I should listen <laughs> because I have spent a lot of my life kind of forming that system of validation around what will I accomplish by this age? Where will I be in my career by this time? And I don't know that that always fails to gain you the kind of validation that you want, but I think that it always means that your motivation is a little bit corrupt. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, it also like, you never get there. Like even if yeah. you, if, if you accomplish it and then you get there. And I remember seeing this when we got nominated for a Grammy, because that was like, you'd think that would have been like, whoa, we're here. Mm -hmm. And when we were there in the Grammys, dressed up nice, (laughs) Questlove sitting right in front of me in the Grammys, like, (laughs) we're here. Why am I miserable? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Because it's like, and never are we going to win. And then if we would have won, we didn't win. But if we would have won, then we'd be like, are we going to win again? Or is this the pinnacle? Am I done? Now is it done? Am I, am I on the downhill now? Or, you know, there's always, always something. If you get the million dollars, am I going to lose it? Now am I going to, is that the, you know, there's always something else. And it's kind of the the genius and the disease of the human mind is Mm. we can be sitting in these chairs and here we are. And this moment is all there is. But because we have these minds, we can imagine something other than it is. So we can go, ooh, I should have a better chair than this. <laughs> right? Like this chair is kind of shit. So I, I wish I had a, I should have a better chair. And we can use that to actually, we, we, I could go get a better chair if I wanted in the future. So we can use that power to like create 
a crazy complex, beautiful world. But also, if we don't know how to turn that off and on or recognize what we're doing, we're never actually enjoying the chair that we're in. We're never actually enjoying anything that really is because we're always just in this moment. So that's that's kind of the, yeah, the genius and the curse of the human mind. So until we can learn to balance that and see, yes, we're on a journey towards something because we have this imagination. We could imagine what else we could be doing. And there's all this movement, quote unquote, movement with in our minds. But if you look at this moment, there's no movement. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at this moment small enough, just sitting here. Mm. But we're making a podcast. We're doing something that's gonna create something. We're gonna, but in this moment, we're not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, like both of those things together, and if we can enjoy the not doing anything, then we can become more like the rest of, like the rest of nature is doing things, but mm. it's not worried about doing things. Mm. You know, like yeah, the trees are growing. They're not worried about growing. They're gonna keep growing, mm. but they're not sitting there fretting about it and we're going to make podcasts and we're going to make music and we're going to try to build careers. But we have this level of mind where we could be worried about that and like Mm -hmm. living in, in that, or we could be living in now and letting that happen as it does. And that seems a a more whole way to live to me. Mm -hmm. I like your example about the, the chair too. Like, I think that's actually an important way to look at something like this, like almost looking at it like a skill, like a, a tool that you can pull out when you need in a way, because mm-hmm. especially when it's something like ambition or, or like creativity or whatever, where it's seen pretty unanimously as a virtue or even as kind of like in some circles, it's like a superpower. I mean, it's like you have this power to like get things done or this power to like make something that will like change somebody's life on some level. Like that doesn't make it any more or less of a tool or a, or a skill. You know, it's the same as like, if you were like a really, really, really good runner like you can still use a car, you know, there's still going to be situations where it's more appropriate. Like if you have to go grocery shopping, you're not going to be like, well, let me lace up and just go do this. Like <laughs> you're going to, you're going to take a car and you're going to get your stuff and you're going to come back and you're still going to be an elite runner, you know? So it's like, I think there's something really healthy about looking at even something as kind of indefinable as ambition where mm-hmm. like, just trusting and like learning the whereabouts of that switch and trusting that it's there. So when you need to flip it, yeah, it's going to be just as true and just as ruthless when it needs to be. Like you're going to still have all of those demons. You're going to have all that doubt. You're going to have all of that, like the stuff with the validation, you know, like all of that's going to come roaring back into the foreground and that's part of it. But you maintain the agency to flip that switch back off when like, all right, now it's more appropriate for me to like go to bed or be a member of society or mm-hmm. hang out with people. And, you know, it's like, I think there's really something to be said for looking at it that way. But my God, that takes some practice. Yeah. Because we're not taught to do that. Like it's, I don't think that's necessarily expected of anybody. That's something that, again, you only get there out of necessity. Like everybody for, at least in my life, my entire childhood, like that's the kind of stuff you're told to to cultivate in, in yourself and kind of be very proud of when you achieve it on any level. But it can get just as poisonous as doubt or anything like that. Yeah, well, it's like I was talking about with uh, trying to convince my family that I still cared about Christianity and whatever. Like what I was trying to do was impress them with my intellect. And be an intellectual and say, this is what you should admire about me because it is with this that I have grasped this information that I am now like sharing with you. And I don't know, that's kind of what I put work into, I guess. But it's like, that's not the part of me that should be with my family, you know? But there's like a terror on the flip side of that because when you when you apply that type of thinking, which to me feels right case by case, but when you apply that type of thinking to everything in your identity in your life that it could apply to what's left you know Mm. like what's that through line what's that thread that everything kind of winds around and how do you avoid feeling disingenuous like how do you avoid that feeling that you're putting on a different mask or something when those things actually were parts that you considered integral to your identity or what if there's nothing left you know Mm. what if you're just kind of a collection of like I have that image of like the thing of umbrellas next to the door, you know, like what if you're just that, you're just a bucket, <laughs> like, you know, it's like, it takes you to a scary, bad place. So like, I see why people don't do this. 
<laughs> I don't know that it's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been, uh, what did Lisa say to me the other day? My partner Lisa the other day was like, do you see me as a, and she had some like concern that I saw her in a negative light. And I was like, I see you as a bundle of food that has been collected by the universe that has different experiences in every moment. <laughs> and she's like, rolls her eyes. <laughs> I'd love to say that to like a police sketch artist sometimes to see what they do. <laughs> God. That's what these bodies are. They're just collections of food. Yeah. <laughs> and then they feel things. The collection of food goes, I want to be famous. <laughs> So I'm curious, has there ever been a point in your career where you where you have felt, you know, just satiated in uh in what you've created and that you weren't just looking to the next thing? Like when you finished the third installment of One Wildlife. Yeah. Were you like, okay, that's good for now? <laughs> <laughs> uh I kinda always have I almost always have the next thing on the docket already. And I always try to like take a breath before I jump right in, but I don't yeah. always take that long of a breath. Uh, I've been in an interesting thing lately where I feel like my primary job is like yoga <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, breathing and presence. Yeah. That feels like my my actual job right now. And then everything else is kind of being secondary to that. Which is cool that I have the privilege to be able to do that. And I don't have to like clock into a job a certain amount of hours all every day. Mm-hmm. But I'll be curious to see what kind of work comes out of that. I, I feel like I've, especially, yeah, since One Wildlife, um, there's been times in the podcast where we're on a schedule and that does start feeling like a grind. Where it's like mm-hmm. I have to get a number of things done by a certain time. When I don't have that happening... Uh, Especially music has been more of just like an overflow of my life, which is mm. nice. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if we should, um, do you have a, a, a time limit here at all? Uh, I got to go pretty soon, but I can, I'm, not, I'm not at a hard cutoff right now. Okay. Okay. Because um, I wonder, um, you know, this, this recent podcast that you released kind of touched on um, not, you know, getting the engagement that you would like with your art, um, in order to, you know, advance your career or, or, um, or like maintain your career. You had some concerns about that. Mm-hmm. So I wonder for the sorts of people who might be experiencing that, because a lot of, you know, I was thinking about this in terms of the pandemic where a lot of people may have lost their momentum or lost their name recognition as they haven't been performing out or releasing as much material because they just haven't been in the space for it, you know? Mm-hmm. So it might be comforting and valuable to um, kind of go through, as you've been having this thought, do I have a career anymore? You know, or like, is is my brand, so to speak, able to sustain me from this point on? And you said that you've kind of been working through some of this stuff in therapy. So I think it would be helpful to uh, kind of go through what you've found. And um, yeah. Like you as a as a very talented songwriter and musician, it makes sense, you know, like you would want that to be how you make your living. You would want that to be your your career. And when we are identified with our creativity and that does sustain us, you know, financially and our, it sustains our livelihood, then that's great. So is there sort of an existential threat to you for saying like, oh, is is my is is my mind, my intellect, my creativity not going to be the thing that sustains me from now on there would have been for almost my entire life um thankfully at this point like i said in the podcast i'm experiencing all of this uncertainty and loss as grace Mm. and what i mean by that is and this will sound a little old school children's church christian but (laughs) um i mean not just children's church christian but like pretty classically christian because it was jesus who said 
don't worry about tomorrow and look at the birds they're taking care of. Your heavenly father feeds them. Mm -hmm. How much more will he feed you? And there's been some aspect of like just seeing, I mean, how are we all still alive through this pandemic? Like people weren't working. We're all still here. And not, I mean, people have died obviously, but most of, if you're listening to this, you made it. Yeah. How, how did you make it? Like, how have we all, how are we all alive? It's crazy. And if I take so much credit, like I've kept myself alive with my own ingenuity and my own creativity. Really? Mm. <laughs> I, I think, I think life just happens and it like keeps itself living mm. somehow. And the giver of life keeps giving life. And this breath, I'm not by my own ingenuity taking this breath. It's just here. Mm-hmm. And somehow, I if I, I there's literally, I no way I could have plotted out my life. Like if I at seventeen, okay, first I'm going to become a Christian rock musician. <laughs> I'm going to lose my faith. I'm going to start a podcast, which didn't even exist at the time. Like what? How? How would I possibly know how money's going to come? How? life is going to keep me being alive. There's no way to know. I could not have plotted this course and I know I can't plot tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I can try, but it's not going to turn out exactly as I think it is. So there's just a kind of a level of trust that I've been uh, pummeled by life. even <laughs> <laughs> needing to have because I know I can't control it. Yeah. So like, I mean, I could wake up tomorrow and not have a voice. Yeah. You know, how do I might sit down tomorrow and there's nothing that comes out my guitar. Or I might be blessed with the song that's going to make me a bajillionaire. I don't know. All I know to do is to keep enjoying this moment. <laughs> and I've found that the more I enjoy this moment, as it is, everything else just takes care of itself. And it really does. And, and it tends, the more I enjoy this moment, it tends to take its care of itself in more beautiful ways. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes it goes through transitions where it gets really hard for a second, but, um, I just, I have full confidence in my source at this point, that the life that I'm living, the sustenance that I have, the security that I have is not based in my own ego. I used to think it was, I used to think I could control it and and hold my own life up. I can't, I'm completely dependent on what is. Um, so all, all I know how to do at this point is just trust it and surrender to it. That's beautiful. So let's debrief on this a little bit. A quick content warning here. In the next minute or two, Matt and I talk very briefly and very theoretically about how the concept of suicide might apply to this topic. I don't think that in this context it's particularly triggering, but if you feel the need to fast forward a few minutes, please feel free. I really like this shift in perspective that seems to be necessary when you've been validated by a certain practice or a certain career or a certain talent or output that you have. But then you know that like, even if you keep doing that thing, you necessarily have to shift your perspective to stop it from hurting when you don't get that validation, Yeah, you know, and then like create your own system of, well, how is my ego going to be taken care of? And I think that there are times when it's necessary for the ego to be taken care of, but you know, I don't think that it's necessary to like shed the ego as a whole. I think using it as a tool is a lot more valuable mm-hmm. personally. But what about this concept that the universe takes care of itself? Life just happens. And if we maintain an appropriate level of responsibility to it, yeah, then all that remains for us is to be responsible and to be and to have the, the confidence and the sense of ownership Mm. over our responsibilities and over our challenges that that's how it will take care of itself and that's how we'll find fulfillment so that i always start to think about existentialism though sure and partially this is because this is where i'm kind of where i am mentally right now it's just i i take everything to this place that i can but like mm-hmm. 
the idea of, of suicide occurred to me, you know, like there have been points in my life where I have been just deeply depressed or just fucked up in one way or another, or just going through some stuff that's like made me feel like, yeah, well, that's going to be the way out. Uh And I have made the choice to take that next breath. And when I wake up the next morning, it's like, yeah, I'm here because I'm, I'm letting myself be here. So there's been this other side of it where it's like, that breath isn't grace. That breath is a fucking choice. Mm. And it, it was so freeing. It sounds kind of weird, I think, if you're not acquainted with that that sort of sudden clarity, but that has been something that I've taken with me throughout my life since those times is that, like, the option is always there. It's actually, it was the moment that I was able to kind of get out of that rut in a more, not in a permanent sense, because I'm, I'm sure that'll come back, but, like, in the sense that I was able to move forward, it was this feeling that, like, suicide's not going to go away just because I decide to like get dressed today. (laughs) You know, like Mm. I can go out and try to do the best I can and try to have fun and try to make life something that I actually give a shit about. And if it doesn't work, you know what? I'm back to dough. I'm back here. And so that put it firmly back into my own hands. And as I started to read more existentialist stuff over the years, I've started to realize like, Oh, that's, that was a big part of where my mind was starting to want to go. Was this sense that, and, and to me, it's sort of a dichotomy, but like the sense that like we do have control over our, our existence and we do have sort of a responsibility to keep ourselves interested in that way. Yeah. But there's another kind of macro level to that where life is just too big, you yeah. know, like we can't, we can't take responsibility for all of it, you know, so whether it's God or whether it's just as much cause and effect as we have with however many billion people around the planet existing at the same time, we can't pretend to anticipate everything or control everything. So there's a certain amount of trust or resignation or faith that has to come into play just to keep you focused, you know? Yeah. I think trust is my biggest takeaway. Cause as you're saying, like, I, okay. The, the, like suicidal ideation is the product of a prolonged or maybe like, what feels like a cemented frame of time. Yeah. You know? And I think that what Michael's talking about when he says, when he, when he says, you know, experiencing suffering is grace, um, which we've heard from Brian Dickens in the past. Yeah. Is more speaking to a state of transition is more speaking to like, things seem like they are collapsing. Things seem like they're crumbling around me, but that's how transitions happen. You know, that's how we find ourselves moving on to the next thing and experiencing that as grace and experiencing that as something that um, that might sneak up on you and say, like, you've forgotten how to trust. You need to learn how to trust again, because we all need to learn how to trust. We all need to trust that our our own ability to commit to our responsibilities. And we all need to trust our ability to rise to the next occasion Mm. that presents itself to us. Or we need to trust in our abilities to seek the next occasion ourselves. Yeah. So I don't think it's so much you choose to go on living and experience that as something else's influence on you rather than your own choice. Because as you're saying, like it's very empowering to see that as your choice. It's very empowering to say like, no, this, this feels out of my hands. I'm going to take it back in my hands. Mm. And that's a really valuable thought to be able to have, especially when you're in that kind of a state. Mm. But I would say that the grace comes from framing a state of transition or framing a time of turmoil or a time of deconstruction as you were so certain and now you need to be uncertain for a while Mm. and remember how it feels to be uncertain and remember how it feels to have to try for the next thing. Yeah. And I think then then there's a bigger reward. I think that's, that's the grace. No, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And they I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive, really. I mean, no. that's, I think both of those concepts kind of get a bad rap sometimes as being end all be all places that you, your mind goes or your spirituality goes or something, but they mm. dovetail pretty perfectly. Yeah. And they really can coexist. And I mean, I like that as the more I go through life, the more that sort of appeals to me doing those thought process together, you know, like... Mm. Uh, at least for me, I, I find they kind of leapfrog each other and, and they keep me going. But I've also been thinking about this, uh, how we're, we're, all, we're kind of talking about cyclical suffering. We're kind of talking about like a perpetuation of suffering. 
yeah um by engaging in this system of validation because what i was thinking is you know if you're the artist you're the entertainer you have to make art for people yeah and then what we're talking about in this episode is you know we're resenting that we need the validation of those people to consider ourselves actualized as the artist as the entertainer Mm. needing that validation and resenting it causes more suffering and pain gives rise to art so (laughs) we suffer and then we make no more art that is fueled by the suffering and because we've made that art we present it as the entertainer and we're validated (laughs) by those people again we resent them for the validation again and so it goes on and on And there's definitely been times in my life where, like, I would not have resented that as much as I might now or as much as, you know, anyone might. And it's it's hard for me to find something that is so wrong with that that it demands change. Yeah. When I think about it. But I also like if if I knew someone who was in that state and they were just like cranking out great art. Yeah. I'd be like, I don't I don't know that you need to change. Like, yeah, this is an existential problem. You do you. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> if I personally was in that state and, and suffering because I didn't feel actualized or because I didn't feel the validation that I need, like if you told me, go make some art with it, I'd be like, okay, great. And that's something that I think is like important to establish in friendships and in relationships and in those systems of validation between people, um, at yeah. least interpersonally is like, if you're suffering in such a way or don't feel validated, like you need to know the language that someone is going to speak to you with yeah, and is going to like try to encourage you or try to cheer you up with or whatever. Like you need to know kind of that person's brand. Yeah. Yeah. Which is actually the subject of the, of the blog that I'm writing right now Mm. for our, uh, for our page. So I think like what Michael was discussing about, his crowd like his his christian crowd like if you're writing a lot of songs about losing your faith that might not be the crowd because <laughs> <laughs> that's not that crowd's brand you no. know? so what i hear when he tells that story is like i feel a great amount of grief for mm. someone whose audience couldn't understand the art that he was making necessarily yeah or that like he could no longer understand the art that his audience wanted him to make mm. So there's just, there's a lot of sorrow there yeah. that I can feel because like, again, as an artist, when you're, when you're creating and the validation that you get is supposed to be what inspires you to create more, Yeah, you know, whether it's the validation or the need for that validation, you'd like to think that it is the material and not the ethos that they're engaging with. I was telling you after we had to let Michael go that I felt like I was trying to be on his podcast rather than letting him be on mine. <laughs> and I think what what I meant by that was that I didn't uh, allow much of the typical black market therapy banter to happen. I think I was very, I'm, I'm always very interested in the faith stories. Yeah. And, and in the stories of like one's journey with, with Christianity, because that's kind of, at least in a passive way, always where my head is at in in one way or another. Yeah. Um, So I wonder, uh, before we close it out, (laughs) how have you healed yourself from the need for validation? I don't think I have. I think I've just moved it over to a different box, man. (laughs) To be honest, I just look for it in different places. Like, I mean, part of it, I think, is um, I have healed in some ways, like old, some of the, like, really low-hanging fruit stuff that I used to think mattered, like... Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, like certain like types of like online stats and like just shit like that, like at least specifically around music, like different things like that. I just don't care anymore. And it's not a like a choice or like a decision or like a, I I don't feel enlightened or anything because of it. It just feels like whatever muscle let me do that, like let me care about those things just has either atrophied or separated from the bone, you know, and it's just not there and it's not helping me anymore. So I don't crave that kind of validation the same way I used to. Um, But yeah, I think I still crave validation for sure. But I I think I just have found a real 
benefit to kind of like tricking myself as bad as it sounds like mm. coming up with like little mindless challenges to like when I'm in a situation where I can kind of like zoom out a little bit and I can see, all right, you're doing that thing again. Like you're looking for approval or you're looking for like, you're looking to satisfy something. Those are the days I'll, I'll try to just ride my bike really fast or I'll try to set some kind of arbitrary benchmark and I'll yeah. try to do that so that I can go to bed that night feeling like, no, I did something. Mm. And it doesn't work uh, all the time or the way that I want it to, but it's been a pretty good holding pattern. And uh, it's something I am coming to terms with, though, like that I think is a part of myself that I get just a little bit more even keeled about it as I go through life. But yeah, it's pretty deeply embedded in there. So, (laughs) yeah. How about you? I think that I went through this radical shift near uh in my my in my late 20s when i stopped writing about personal things so much mm-hmm. i wasn't writing autobiographically anymore really um i was just writing about ideas and characters and just like what i talk about all the time just like existential questions put into poetry yeah i think a lot of the time especially for like young artists young and and young lyricists and young prose writers fiction writers when you're writing autobiographically a lot, like yeah. you are putting your existence out there to be validated <laughs> yeah, rather than putting art out there to be validated. Yeah. Uh, not rather than, cause they're the same, you know, it's, but it's art that is autobiographical, but yeah, I know if you, you mean, can yeah. separate the two, which I think is what I did um, and what benefited me to do. Yeah. But I also did that at a time when I was like needing less validation yeah. Like I was kind of having this aha moment, this like coming to Jesus moment, if you will, mm. about like, oh, I get it. I'm making, I've been making art for the wrong reasons. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's like I was saying to Michael, like not wanting to be labeled a Christian doesn't mean that I'm going to stop writing in biblical metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Because what I found the most value in was metaphor. Yeah. And realized like, I, who cares if these songs are about me? Yeah. Who's, who cares if these songs, you know, say something that about what I have gone through or an experience that I've had, because ultimately that's not what matters. What matters is like how that affects you emotionally and yeah. builds you as a person. And what's more important is like, if you're expecting somebody to take in that information about you, yeah. You're expecting them to have the empathy necessary to know what you're saying with that song yeah. and to know what emotion was conjured in you in order to write it and what emotion you're you're trying to conjure in them in order to understand it. Yeah. So I came upon this time in my life where I realized that metaphor was the greatest path to empathy mm. because empathy is, in my mind, this is a little bit reductive, but in my mind, empathy is the transaction that is happening. Mm. when someone is appreciating art. Okay, yeah. You can see how it's reductive. Yeah, but, but I, I get what you mean. I mean, I yeah. think it is a pretty, it's a good point to put on it, yeah. Yeah, but it's also at least one element of of what is occurring there. Yeah. Um, and especially when you hear a song that, like, makes you emotional about yeah. something. Like, that is a very specific transaction. So I'm like, that's what I have gotten the most out of. When I, um, this is a long answer, but (laughs) like when I have had the most visceral reaction to a piece of art, Mm. can I focus on recreating those moments? Yeah. I stopped focusing on how to put my experiences into art and started focusing on how to create experiences for the listener. Well, I think validation functions as a learning tool in that way too then, because I mean, that's something that like... As much as it's a very easy thing to knock, because it it can turn uh, superficial at best very quickly, but it's it's really important when you're learning anything, like to be seeking validation, because there's no way of knowing internally what the hell you're doing. But <laughs> yeah. there's definitely, I I think there's a point that you can come to with any any skill or any idea or any aspect of your identity where you you stop seeking it because it just that starts becoming a detour. Like you're doing enough internally and with the skills that you now feel comfortable with that you're no longer going to those 
kind of validating places externally because you don't, you almost forget to at first. And then after a while, they're just kind of not relevant. And it's like anything else you would learn. Like you, you have like a cheat sheet of whatever and you're consulting it all the time. And then eventually you realize you haven't consulted it. You just did a bunch of stuff from memory and you're like, oh shit. Okay. It's like directions or something like that's kind of how I look at it sometimes. It's like, I remember when I was first starting music, I, I cared about those specific types of validation way more. Mm-hmm. But I learned from them every time I didn't receive them. And it felt a type of good every time I did. And then after a while, that type of good started to become like, all right, that's a thing that can happen consistently if you do well and inconsistently if you don't. And I stopped caring when I didn't receive them because I started having rebuttals. Yeah. And then those rebuttals started to make more and more sense. And then after a while, I was like, all right, like, I guess this is no longer relevant to me. And I started mm-hmm. looking for it in other places and within myself. And But it's a valuable teaching tool at first. Yeah. But it'll also lead you to hell. <laughs> and that's our show. As always, Black Market Therapy is a Dead and Mellow production. And to stay in touch with us, you can follow Black Market Therapy and Dead and Mellow Records on social media. You can also submit any questions or comments to blackmarkettherapypodcast at gmail.com. Once again, the opening music was Michael Gunger's newest single, Look What I Can Do. And the rest of this episode was scored by me, Joel Munchen. And for more of Michael's work, you can listen to any one of his amazing albums or go to theliturgist.com for more information on that community. We'll be back next week with Trevor Sullivan of the band Bullpup and his take on healthy competition. Until then.